Welcome to Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. Do you sometimes feel alone in life with personal and interpersonal struggles and challenges? We'll show you that you are not alone and that you can learn and thrive from your challenges and thereby live a healthy life. Now, here is your host, Dr. Vadisha Patel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Perspectives. This is Dr. Vidisha Patel, and I'm your host for this hour. As a licensed mental health therapist, I find myself searching through multiple modalities to find what will work best for any given client, whether it's in private practice or with college-age students at a local four-year college. It is a relationship-based process for me where I think about what my client needs on that day. In addition, I want to give my clients the ability to leave a session with something tangible that they can work on or utilize in moments of need in between our sessions. So in this effort, I find myself incorporating techniques and tools that I have learned not just in graduate school, but also through personal experience that I find useful. An understanding of my cultural upbringing has taken me on a road of exploring Eastern religion in greater depth. I still feel as if I have only scratched the surface in my understanding, but meditation is something that has come up over and over as a helpful technique for me and also for the clients that I've shared it with. So today, I bring you a friend and a teacher who will start by talking about meditation, but we're going to take this conversation much further along the journey of understanding ourselves. Ramakrishnan was born and raised in India and currently lives outside Chicago in the United States. She teaches out of her studio called Full Bloom Lotus Center for Self-Awareness, providing instruction in meditation, mindfulness, book discussions, and private sessions. Rama's journey to this place is inspirational, unique, and worth hearing. So welcome, Rama, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Yudhisha. <laughs> it, is, it is our pleasure. So I, I have been intrigued by your story, and I've heard little bits and pieces about it. So I'd love for you to share what brought you from a career in accounting, I think, across the continents to the U.S. and to what you are doing today. Where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, before we, uh, you know, before I even started on my career in um, as a CPA or accounting, uh, meditation found me at a time when I needed it. Um, you know, I grew up in a family in India where one's... Uh, I, I think it was quite common at that time, and it still is in many parts of the world, where one's identity is completely related to one's ach- academic achievement. Right. And, and uh, yeah, so, you know, and I, I was a very good student, so I didn't have any problems at all in life, till um, I attempted um, my CPA examination, and I faced failure for the first time. And uh, that just threw me down a rabbit hole. And I was lost in, you know, just so much uh, confusion and com- uh, feeling uh, completely unworthy and not knowing who I was. And uh, I couldn't go back to writing the examination again for a complete uh, period of two years. Uh-huh. And during this time, 
um, uh, I was really seeking, seeking for some ray of hope. And I met uh, my teacher who uh, had a profound impact on me. Um, he was a great, uh, you know, figure uh, in the spiritual world in India at that time, almost like the Dalai Lama would be here at, the, you know, in, at uh, that time. Meeting him brought in some kind of energy, some kind of hope, and he taught me how to meditate. And that meditation and the journey into meditation and the practice of meditation in the coming months and weeks that followed brought me so much relief. I just settled down and then felt much better and went back and tackled the examination and passed it and became a CPA. But, you know, even during the time that I was practicing it, I thought, if this thing really works, I will do something about it when I am on the other side. So when I became a CPA, and I really saw the benefits of it, I just vowed to bring the world around. And um, that's how I kept my vow to myself alive, by talking about it all the time. And then when I moved to the United States in 1998, I started to teach it informally and uh, began to spread the benefit of just a calm mind and how it facilitates clear thinking and empowering a person at a deep level to different people. And gradually, people wanted to know more, and this became quite a, a movement. And finally, in 2007, I started my own meditation studio called Full Bloom Lotus Center for Self-Awareness. That's quite an amazing story because when I think back to life in India and growing up in India, um, I I know that the meditation and the cultural religious background is important for all of our families, but the focus was usually primarily on the work and the education and the advancement of our careers. So I think it's um, wonderful to hear that you had the support. I'm assuming you had the support of your family to to pursue this uh, meditation alongside of the CPA work that you were doing. You, you go see a therapist, you know, what is going on? Whereas in India, all they did was to say, go pray, go meditate. And... Uh, so they were happy that I was going to uh, do something, but really it was with the limited idea of go do this thing and go back and write that examination. You know, the whole goal was to get me to pass the examination and get back on track to academic achievement. Um, I think it came as a little of a shock to my parents when later in life I decided to completely give up my CPA career and take up meditation and teaching this full time. I don't think they have bargained <laughs> for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, did you continue any of the CPA work when you first came to the U.S.? No. Um, before we left India, before we came to the U.S., when we left India, we lived for three years in Thailand and uh, for uh, a year in Israel. And uh, so, with the changing uh, nature of my husband's uh, work and where we were living, the CPA degree fell to the wayside because it's it's a, it's an education that would have to adhere to the rules of the the country, and I was right. not going to take that exam and again and again 
Besides, my interest in the mind and what happens behind the mind had already taken over my life. So I was, I think, secretly glad that my husband's job kept me from the, from practicing in the city. So this convenient <laughs> escape. <laughs> so, so when you came to the U.S. and you were practicing these techniques yourself, you said you started sharing... Um, and I'm assuming you were sharing it as well when you were living it, living in Thailand and Israel. Um, how did you, how did you share? Because in those years, I'm not sure how um, accepted meditation was as a common topic of conversation. Yeah, I don't think I was talking about meditation as such as as much as the you know I'm a very good storyteller, so I would tell stories about how I applied it to my life, how some insight that happened during meditation really shifted some perspective, um, some quarrel I was having with somebody, some misunderstanding with my husband, how in meditation I got clarity. So that was what I was talking about. And that got people curious to say, what is this that you are doing that's bringing about so much clarity? Can you teach me how to do this? <laughs> um, <laughs> so that was how it started. But uh, for years, uh, when I first started teaching, people would say, I'm not meditating the way you taught me to, but I'm still thinking of the wisdom you shared. And so when I started my studio, I didn't call it Full Bloom Lotus Meditation Center. I called it Full Bloom Lotus Center for Self-Awareness. So that was something people were more open to than sitting meditation, you know? How to be aware of your life, how to be present to your life. So that's more, uh, I think these days the world that is going around is mindfulness. Right. Um, so I think it's more mindfulness than actually sitting meditation that people were interested in. And clearly, you know, they say you should give people what they want and then you give them what they need. So yes. I think it is, <laughs> I first was giving them what they wanted in terms of just wisdom and mindfulness, but then slowly saying to them, you know, this cannot happen if you don't take some time and just sit down and let your thoughts settle down. Right. Which then brings me to the question about what is meditation? Because I find that people interchange meditation and mindfulness in in the same sentence, in conversation. Um, do you see them as something different? And if so, how do you see them as different? Yeah, I think that meditation is, uh, you know, it's, a, it's the actual act of sitting down and allowing um, the power of your thoughts. Generally for us, who we are going into the you know, background and it is our thoughts that are in the forefront of our awareness. And I think meditation is a time that you sit down and you let your thoughts go into the background so that who you are becomes more clear and comes to the forefront. Now, this is meditation, but, you know, in mindfulness, I think people are scared of using the word meditation because it takes on 
people uh, people down a road of thinking of spirituality and they've got to become a monk or go off to a monastery. So <laughs> in mindfulness, we don't use the word meditation. We are very cautious about turning people off. So we just say, how about a sitting practice of mindfulness? It is the same thing. And mindfulness, for me, the way I use meditation is how I was, uh, how I just described it. And how I understand the term mindfulness is taking what you learned in meditation and applying it to your life. When I'm in meditation, I see clearly I'm not my thoughts. My thoughts have their own identity and I have mine. When I take it into my life and I am applying it in a conversation with someone or in a stressful situation, I am able to keep that wisdom with me that my my opinions and the judgments that are coming up into my mind as I am listening or engaging in this conversation, they are not who I am. And I have to keep these judgments at arm's length so that I can then decide whether or not I'm going to go with them. And that's the practice of mindfulness. So I think mindfulness begins the minute you get off the mat into your life. And meditation okay. begins when you take time off from your life to go within. So it's almost as if the mindfulness follows from the meditation and carries forward what you've brought to the foreground in meditation. Would that be one way yes. of thinking about it? Correct. I know that is how I see it. That uh, you know, bringing the wisdom um, to the forefront is meditation. Applying the wisdom requires mindfulness. Okay, that's a that's a great description. I've never had anyone clearly explain that um, in that way. So um, I. Not sure I want to put you on the spot, but I sort of do to ask you if you could give an example of how this meditation to mindfulness uh, played out in perhaps a conversation. And we only have about a minute before we go to the break. So I don't know if you have a small story you could share. Well, I have uh, <laughs> plenty, you know. It could be simply that, for example, when my kids were young and my son is playing the violin, instead of listening to him playing the violin, I'm looking at his nails and his hair. I'm thinking, why is his hair not cut? Why is his hair so dirty? When this is the last time that uh, I took him for a haircut. These are thoughts that are going through my mind as I'm listening to my son playing the violin. And it is making a manual intervention uh, and looking at it and saying, no, we're not doing that right now. That's not important. You have to pay attention and listen to him. Look at the beautiful child you have given birth to who's playing this lovely piece of music or bad piece of music. Okay. It's that awareness of switching from habitual thinking to a very intentional way of being in, uh, engaging in the activity that mindfulness, and that would be a great example that is under a minute. That's a beautiful example. Uh, we are about <laughs> to go to a commercial break, so please stay tuned. Yeah. Um, we're talking about meditation for now and so much more with Rama Krishnan of Full Bloom Lotus Center for Self-Awareness. If you have questions, you can email me, Dr. Vidisha Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. 
We will be right back and we are going to try an experiential exercise when we return. So stay tuned. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere, Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, The Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks. Live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number four, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to Perspectives. This is Dr. Vidisha Patel, your host, and I'm in conversation with Rama Krishnan, teacher, guide, and mentor. So, Rama, we were talking about meditation as we went to the commercial break, and clients often tell me that they don't have time for meditation, um, that it's it takes too long or they're not able to do it. Um how do you respond to that? Have you ever had people say that to you? Oh, yes. I, this, I hear this all the time. And uh, over the years, I've tried to sim- make it simpler and simpler and simpler. Earlier, I, I would say, I, when I first started teaching, I said 20 minutes twice a day. Then I went on to say 20 minutes once a day. Mm-hmm. Now where I am, I say I will take 20 minutes, 20 times, one minute at a time. So you can do one minute of meditation when you are drinking your coffee in the morning. One minute when you are taking a shower. One minute when you are applying lotion. One minute when you are wearing your clothes. So on and so forth. 
you know, uh, where one minute when you're waiting for the stoplight to turn green on you. <laughs> so, and then, so then, now I have great reports of people saying, I did 20-minute meditation uh, in uh, 20 different sessions, and I said, you've, you've met my requirement. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I think that the pressure of how they think the meditation should be right. causes people to find it daunting, but really, it's not supposed to be daunting. It's supposed to be the easiest thing you do because you're not, we're not asking you to do anything. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's where, where I get stuck. And so what I often find is that rather than just telling people or offering them try A, B, or C, I find that something experiential is often helpful. So with that, I was hoping that you would lead us in a very brief experiential meditation exercise, um, because I'd like the listeners to have something concrete to understand. Um, would you be willing to do, do that for about yeah. one or two minutes? I absolutely would love to. Okay, well, then let's do it. <laughs> okay, then here we go. So... To um, have the best possible meditation, I would say find a place that's comfortable. Um, sit up tall, not erect, but just tall and open up the spine. Close your eyes. And notice when you close your eyes, sometimes when we close our eyes, our eyes continue to look outside. That's because the five senses are geared to look into the outside world. So closing your eyes is really an instruction to take your five senses and turn them inside. Let the sense of sight behind closed lids look within. Let the sense of touch help you get in touch with who you are. Let the sense of sound turn off the sounds on the outside and pay attention to the stillness within. Let the sense of taste and smell help you to savor your spirit. And having turned your attention inward, notice the mind which continues to jump and offer its commentary. And that's all right. When it's snowing or raining, we don't need the raindrops to stop or the snow to stop falling. We just close the windows and go within. So it is with the mind. When the thoughts are doing their downpour, close the windows of the five senses and go to some place of comfort. One place that gives us Steady comfort is our breath. Predictable rhythm gives our attention something stable to plant itself upon. Lean into the comfort of your breath. Your breath is your best friend. It came with you. It will leave with you. Hold on to your best friend 
and give yourself permission to snuggle into this friendship, this relationship, your oldest, your stablest, your most primary relationship. Be comfortable. And know that as you breathe, so do billions of living creatures around the world, under the ground, in the depths of the ocean, and in the sky. Breathe with you. Touch this place of deep connection with yourself and with the rest of the world for just this brief moment. Taking a slow, deep breath. Exhale. Gradually return back. Let the five senses roll outwards. Get back in touch with your body. Let the sounds of the world happen. Let the eyes roll back outwards. Roll back the taste buds and the sense of smell and come back into the world outside. That was beautiful, Rama. And for our listeners, that was really just about two, two and a half minutes or so and very manageable. Um, I, I love the way you bring in the breath and the breath of friend. Um, last week, I was speaking to somebody from the Institute of Heart Math, and heart math techniques also focus in on the breath. I think it's a, a foundation that yeah. is helpful to everybody and a really good anchoring point, I think. Yeah. It's, it's such a simple and wonderful thing. And, you know, if you look at traditions around the world, traditions around the world bring the um, act of breathing into um, the act of connecting. In Latin, uh, breath, um, the word for breath was spiritus, which is spirit. You look at, you know, uh, respiration, it has the word spirit in it. Um, Everything, you know, it all comes down to one simple thing that's so near and so present and yet, uh, we are looking for that primary relationship in people and in you know places far away, whereas that primary relationship is right here in our breath. Absolutely, and um, it is amazing how we like to complicate things. How everyone is always searching for some way, some thing to help us connect better, to understand who we are, and yet we shy away from the most 
simple solution, which really is probably the best solution to helping us. Um, yeah. when, I, when I work with clients doing some breath work and some meditation as well, I always get the question, which you address beautifully in the meditation, but it comes up over and over again, which is, how do I stop my mind from wandering? And how do I stop those thoughts that they persist? And even if they go away for a little while, they come back in again. And I think people get frustrated with that. And sometimes that leads them to stop trying. Yeah, yeah. That's because of a misconception that, you know, when we uh, start to meditate, we won't have any thoughts. And uh, I often, when people ask me this question, I say, I have had uh, so many students over the years and nobody has asked me the question, how do I meditate when my heart is continuing to beat? You know? (laughs) Um, Right. (laughs) Because you don't (laughs) think that these are two mutually exclusive activities. Um, So, yeah, the heart is going to continue to beat and your food is getting digested as you're meditating. Your brain is processing the inputs from the past and the present. So I often joke and I say, only a zombie doesn't think. You're not a zombie, are you? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So it's a good thing. I'm happy your heart is beating, your food is getting digested and thoughts are occurring to you. We are good to go. We're good to go in. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, so allow the thoughts and let them yeah. come and go. Let them come and go. They are not your enemies. And just seeing them, that uh, you know, we tend to do one of two things: we either completely rely on our thoughts to provide us with our identity, and we believe every single thought, or we want to completely throw them out of the house. Um, and that's and neither of them is your, your thoughts are not necessarily uh, all true, but they are not necessarily your enemy. It's how you relate to it that is uh, the problem. And uh, in learning how to meditate, which is why it's, meditation is called a practice, you know, I'm mm-hmm. talking to you about how I'm doing it, but I have been practicing from 1982. That's how many years? 37 years. And in one or two settings, if you are expecting miraculous results, that's not going to happen. And you just have to keep with it. And you slowly, over a period of time, without even realizing it, you've, you know, uh, let the thoughts slowly fade into the background and they have lost their power over you. That makes sense. So I don't mean to close this conversation, but I want to shift gears a little bit because you're so much more than a teacher of just meditation. Um, I know the first time I visited your studio, I was I wasn't sure what to expect, but I was surprised actually that most of your clients were not Indian or of Eastern origin. Um, and I was impressed with how you've bridged the the teachings of the East with the West, and you've brought people together. Did that come? Did that come about naturally? Was it intentional? Um, how did how did all that happen? Mm, it was not intentional. What happened was that when we came to live here in um, you know around Chicago, we live here uh, in a, in Wilmette. It's a suburb of Chicago. Now, 
when we came to live here 20 years ago, we um, this is a not, not a very diverse neighborhood, you know. It's largely uh, people who are Caucasian and hardly one or two Indian families. And uh, the women, Indian women I knew were all working, following careers. So I hung around all the time with uh, people from this culture. And so organically it grew and... Uh, because I wanted to converse with them and bring the teachings uh, into a place that my audience would receive, I had to uh, re- reorient myself and reword it and make it palatable, bring it to a universal conversation so that I'm able to communicate. And I think over the years, um, that's because it's like they say, necessity is the mother of invention. Had I not lived here, had I gone and lived in a neighborhood where there were mostly, um, you know, Asians or Indians or something, I may not have had to reinvent myself like this. But uh, that's how it all happened, that I had to do it because of the audience that I landed up with, which was a blessing. Well, I think it's actually a beautiful example because I think sometimes our most effective teaching is from how we live and how we have adapted and what we find has worked well for us. So I think that that is something that you exemplify. Um, And we will be going to another commercial break in a little bit. Right before we go, though, I would like you, if you would, just tell us very quickly about some of the classes, the different types of things that you teach. We have about 30 seconds left, and then we'll come back and discuss it more in the last segment. Yeah. Yeah, basically, uh, I started teaching meditation, and then it went on. People wanted to learn more, so my entire uh, learning has been on the basis of the chakra system, which is uh, the framework of the um, East. And so I started teaching the chakra system and the psycho-spiritual understanding of the chakra system. And from out of that, the application of it to different areas of life, that led to more classes, more books, more workshops. And uh, that brought about a number of people wanting to see me privately. So the classes that I teach are based on different books by different authors from all over the world, which help me to apply the teachings to their life using the framework of the chakras and combining it with the vocabulary of that particular author. That's great. And we are going to go for a short commercial break. Don't go away because when we come back, we're going to talk some more with Rama about the specific work she does in her classes. So we will be right back to Perspectives. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. 
It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Steps to a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel. If you would like to reach the show today, please call into 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Patel at drv4kids at yahoo.com. That's Dr. V, the number 4, kids at yahoo.com. Now, back to Perspectives. Welcome back to the last segment of our show today. You're listening to Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Vidisha Patel. Please get in touch via email to drv4kids at yahoo.com. If you have any questions or comments, I'm here with Rama Krishnan. Rama is sharing lessons from her journey from India to the U.S., from CPA to teacher guide, and how she helps others progress along their journey. You can find out more about Rama and her offerings at her website, www.fullbloomedlotus.com. So, Rama, I almost had to cut you off in the last segment, um, and you were just talking about the chakra system. Can you explain a little bit more in depth about what that is and how you work with it in your practice? Yeah, so the chakra system, as I was saying earlier, is a very ancient framework of the human mental, emotional, spiritual network. So almost think of it as a map, except that it's not a map. Um, So if I show you a map and tell you, here is where Chicago is, and here is how you get to Florida, and this is the way you move to it. In the same way, The chakra system underlines a map, but it's not about going from one place to another, but it's a trajectory of growth of consciousness, how you can move from a consciousness that is completely um, one-dimensional to a consciousness that is multidimensional and um, understands reality from different perspectives, uh, not just one. And um, our own personal map of where um, our life is, is inside our own body, you know, in our body. The chakras Mm -hmm. in our body are basically, it's a filing system. So in a filing system, you have a record of what has happened in the past and uh, a map of where you have been, the impressions you have collected over several lifetimes, the conclusions you have drawn, Um, the way you have connected the dots of your experience, all of that is part of your personal, individual filing cabinet. And it kind of um, 
provides the template that you are following that is creating repetitive um, karmic experiences for you. So that's so what each, the chakra system is. And so, of course, we each have a, the same chakra system, but the contents of it are obviously different because we're all unique beings. Is that yes? Right. So it's a filing system, but what we have in our individual files are our impressions, our memories, our conclusions, which is going to be different. So while the system is universal, what is in the system is personal. And how much how much information is in there? I mean, this obviously ties to our Eastern philosophies and uh, the belief system of multiple lifetimes as well, which is not yeah. believed by all religions from yeah. what I know. Yeah, so see, what I, um, over the years, many people have asked me, because I, uh, we were just talking about having an audience that's not coming from India, not coming from a culture that believes in reincarnation, but we still understand that we have, each one of us, so many old impressions and fears. And even if you don't believe in past lives and all of that, pretty much now most of science is telling us that we are carrying the DNA which has the memory of our ancestors. So even if it is not my own past life, I definitely know that somewhere in my chakras or in my system, I have the fears of my ancestors. My grandmother who lost many children probably was very uh, afraid and that attachment to children is passed down to me. My great-grandfather who lost all his money in some uh, venture in India, the fear of going out on a limb and starting a new venture is still there in me. So these fears and um, anxieties and disappointments and delights and addictions that are coming into my filing cabinet, it doesn't matter whether it's coming from past lifetimes, as the East would have it, or whether it's coming down from the DNA of recorded memories of our uh, lineage, as, uh, you know, um, the Western scientists would have it. It doesn't matter where it came from, but we still have the same filing cabinet. And so now, moving from that filing cabinet with, say, yes, the, the things that are blessings, but how about the the fears and the addictions? And is there work that we can do now to move forward from those and maybe turn some of those what seem to be problems or challenges into something more positive? Yeah, and I think that's exactly the work that I lead, I teach, and I practice. I talk about it as the journey from karma to dharma, you know. Karma is the past patterns, past templates, past fears, and regardless of where it came from, I am experiencing it in this moment. Now, once I recognize it, now through meditation, I begin to understand and create a distance between my fears instead of just blindly reinforcing every fear that comes to me, I start to make a distance. And then I start to think about How can I move from fear to faith? How can I move from fear to a greater expanded awareness? And so I might have to, you know, do a number of things to, first of all, get in touch with my particular brand of fear. 
So if my particular brand of fear, as I know in my own case, as I started my story um, earlier in our conversation, my fear of failure. Oh, my God, what happens if I fail an examination? That means I'll cease to be worthy. That's, That's a fear. So when I move to dharma, I might have to bring in a new way of looking at myself, defining myself not through the lens of success or failure, not through the lens of, you know, high and low, but through a more unified sense that is able to um, withstand success and failure and know that I am defined by neither of them. A more, and that is what is the work of um, a spiritual tradition, that it enables you to get in touch with your universal identity that is beyond the opposites. Now, when I start to move in where, from karma to dharma, when I'm in karmic mode, I may work very hard to avoid failure ever happening to me. That is operating from karma. But when I start moving into dharma, I re- begin to realize that failure and success don't define me. And so I start acting from a place of a larger sense of self. I become less focused on success and failure. I become more generous as I begin to realize I have nothing to lose on the planet. I'm not worried about competition. I'm not worried about somebody else getting something more than I do because I'm no longer defining myself by what I have, what I do, or what I know. And so as the sense of self becomes more expanded, I'm able to relax, I'm able to be generous, I'm able to give back, I'm able to make a difference to another person. And that becomes just as satisfying as something I might do for myself because my sense of self has expanded. So what I do and uh, how I act in the world changes radically as the sense of self moves from a very scared and isolated person to a more expansive, more expanded and compassionate human being. Okay, so before we go any further, can you... Um, just explain dharma because you talked a little bit about karma but for those people who may not know can you just explain dharma sure so karma is a fear and um, coming from past perception it may not necessarily be a fear anything that is not necessarily the truth and comes from an opinion so let's put it in this way karma would be opinion and dharma would be reality, the truth. And okay. one could have a positive karma of I'm really amazing, I'm a fabulous human being. But that's still an opinion, you see? Right. Whereas right. the truth will just be I am sometimes fabulous and I am sometimes not so great. That would be <laughs> dharma because <laughs> dharma is the truth. It's not just an opinion that's either positive or negative. It's just what it is. Okay, that makes that's a great explanation. And as you describe this movement from karma to dharma, the meditation is used as a as one tool to sort of open up as to what is the karma that you're working with. Is that yes. correct? Yes. And then, so theoretically, it makes a lot of sense to me. But um, more. Specifically, tangibly, what kinds of exercises do you do, if you could give an example of one or two things that you might do um, to move from the karma to the dharma? Yes. So one is, of course, like you just said, meditation. For me, meditation is a daily must. It's not even an optional activity. 
In fact, sometimes I meditate several times a day. Now, the purpose of meditation is because it brings me back to that center, uh, what, I, what I see, you know, and call the no-spin zone. It's, it's neither I'm not spinning outwards, I'm not spinning in. I'm not spinning up, I'm not spinning down. I'm just there. The other practice that I really enjoy um, is uh, journaling. So when I journal, what happens is when I, when I journal my thoughts, uh, let's say I'm very mad about my neighbor who did not uh, reciprocate when I needed her help, and I have helped her 25 times in the past, and I'm so angry, I write it down. I, you know, I journal it. And when I journal it and walk, it helps me to warm it, warm my thoughts onto this place. And that kind of little brings me back into a more balanced place. And then maybe half an hour later or two days later, I read my own writing in the journal, and I think, whoa, what was I thinking? So the journaling helps me to really move away from this great attachment to what was basically my opinion into a more um, objective way of looking at it. So meditation, journaling, and all forms of mindfulness. You know, mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness could be taking a quiet walk and becoming aware that your mind, as it continues to bombard you with its opinions, you just stay focused on your walking. You just stay focused on your drinking a cup of tea. You just stay focused on your music. You read good books. Continue to cultivate. So one of the things that I like about Buddhism is that in Buddhism, the focus is so much on cultivating, you know? So yeah, we were not born wise, um, and we were in fact born in a way, and we were raised in a way as to reinforce our karmic opinions, and cultivating a new way of thinking is, cultivating a dharmic way of living, it's a cultivation, it's a practice. I may do it in this way. I may have to go for therapy for some months. Sometimes a therapist is a good person who helps us to, you know, decipher, make the difference between what is opinion and what is fact. So a combination of things would be in my toolkit as I move from the karma to dharma. That makes a lot of sense. And I like your point about the practice and the cultivation, because I think all of this for all of us is a process. It's not um, a, a journey where we are continually moving forward. There will be times when we move backwards. There will be times when we move sideways or at an angle, True. but always coming back to the path, to the journey, and continuing, just continuing the tools and the techniques and the practice over and over. And I think a lot of people get lost along the way because they want, in this today's world, people want something immediately. Yes, yes. But, you know... True happiness is a long-term process. It's not a quick fix. Right. So we have to help people find the patience and the um, willingness to continue. Um, And maybe that is part of the role. I I know some of the classes you teach, they're group classes, so it's uh, or group discussion. So it probably helps to have several people together who might be at different points in their journey and they can support each other. Yes, 
Yes, you know, um, in Buddhism, again, we have um, the, the threefold path of Buddham Sharanam Gachami, Dharmam Sharanam Gachami, Sangam Sharanam Gachami, which is Sangha, Sangha is community. So even the great Buddha said it's so important to have community. So in community, when we share, when we reveal our um, weaknesses and um, take off our armors, to quote uh, the great mindfulness teacher Pema Chodron, um, we really help one another to grow. And the growth becomes much easier and faster when you grow in community than you being all by yourself alone trying to raise your vibration all by yourself. Absolutely. And unfortunately, we are, again, running out of time. But I would like you to, in a minute, if you could, just explain to us this new work you're doing as you talk about community. You're taking your work out there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I created um, an organization called Growth Through Mindfulness. Um, growththroughmindfulness.com and we've, re- we've got it as a not-for-profit and we are trying to bring uh, the message of mindfulness and la- mindful living into different communities. We are already in many schools in the neighborhood. We are teaching teachers, we are teaching parents, we are teaching children. We are trying to get into hospitals, corporations, retirement homes. We are trying to uh, bring the message to- and this is not being done by me alone. It's me and my community, the community that I um, have been leading has now got many, many men and women uh, involved, and all of us are now moving forward to bringing this message of a more conscious living into different um, uh, pockets and different people, and basically teaching people to live from the heart, you know, because in the present times, there's so much controversy and everybody is um, becoming very self-righteous. So we thought we have to just move away from that into a more heartful way of connecting and communicating with one another. That is absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much, Rama. And thank you to all the listeners for joining us today on Perspectives. I've been talking to Rama Krishnan about meditation and her philosophy of teaching from karma to dharma. Please check out Rama's work at her studio at www.fullbloomlotus.com, as well as her new philanthropic work at www.growthroughmindfulness.com. This is Dr. Vidisha Patel, your host for Perspectives. I look forward to being back with you next week, where we'll continue the conversation around wellness and personal growth. Once again, feel free to reach out to me at drv4kids at yahoo.com or at my website, which is www.peaceofheartllc.com, with any questions or comments. Thank you again, Rama. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our program this week. Another edition of Perspectives with Dr. Vidisha Patel can be heard next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Until we talk again, have a lovely week.